Well, we're going to be in Romans 2, verses 1 through 16 this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And uh, while you're kind of getting there, let me ask this. How many engineering majors do we have in here this morning? All right, quite a few. I hear, all right, good. They're loud. They're all right. Well, I was an engineering major in college as well, uh, but I have to confess, I was not a very good engineering major. Uh, I didn't always do great in my classes. I'd like to say that I tried really hard and just didn't always measure up, but unfortunately, the reality is I didn't always do my best. Um, I was not yet at a stage in my life where I really valued my schoolwork as I should have, and so I didn't always do a great job, and so it wasn't uncommon for me to get a test back and to have kind of a low grade, in fact, a really low grade. Uh, For you 4.0 students, I don't mean like an 89 or something like that. I mean like a really genuinely low grade. Uh, But when I would get those tests back and see that low grade, I learned over time not to panic right away because of uh, the curve, right? Those of you who are engineering majors or in a particularly difficult discipline know that uh, it's not uncommon for you to get a test back and you may have a low grade, but the highest grade in the class might be like a 65, And so your 55 suddenly turns into a solid B and uh, the 65 turns into 100 and everybody is happy, right? And so that happens all the time. And so I was grateful for the curve. I looked forward to the curve and uh, was sad when it didn't happen. There were times that I would get that low grade and look over and see the person next to me with a 97 and think there's going to be no curve, right? And that was a bad day. But as I've thought about that uh, in subsequent years, I've thought there's something a little disturbing about that, isn't there? When we're training people who are going to be building uh, airplanes or the buildings that we're standing in, uh, you would hope for a higher success rate than 65%, right? You don't want to go into an airplane and have the pilot say, 65% of the time these work great, all right? <laughs> it's the other 35% we're not sure about, right? Or... Uh, Have somebody put a pacemaker in your heart and say, yeah, 65% of the time your heart should beat, but uh, other than that, you're okay, right? Uh, You don't want that. You want people to look for slightly uh, higher standards. And ultimately, what we would hope for, although it may not be achievable, is an absolute standard of perfection. We would love it if engineers and doctors and architects and all of us would shoot for an absolute standard of perfection because there is an absolute standard out there somewhere. But we tend to think often in terms of the curve. As long as I'm doing better than uh, the guy next door or the company down the street or whatever it may be, I'm doing all right. We grade our lives on a curve. And uh, many of us tend to view our spiritual life that way as well. Uh, We grade our spiritual life on a curve. And we think as long as I'm doing better than you, I'm okay. And so instead of looking at the absolute standard of God's righteousness, uh, we look at ourselves and we, we make ourselves the standard. Uh, if you've been here as we've walked through Romans, uh, the very first week, you'll remember Brian and Blake talked about the righteousness of God. And they talked about how righteousness in the book of Romans is essentially this idea of how do we uh, meet God's standard of holiness, of perfection. Righteousness means to be right before God, to meet all the obligations that you and I have before God so that we are no longer condemned for our failure to meet his standard. That's righteousness. 
Now, when we get to Romans 2, what Paul addresses is the person who believes himself to be righteous because he's grading on a curve. And so he looks at other people and he says, I'm better than them, therefore I am righteous. And so this is the moralist or the self-righteous person. The self-righteous person is a couple of different people, I think, in the book of Romans. One would be the non-Christian who believes that he or she can earn his or her way to eternal life. So the person who says, I can do enough things, I can be good enough, I can uh, obey God well enough that God will be pleased with me and I can earn his favor and he'll give me eternal life. That's a self-righteous person. Uh, There's another kind of self-righteous person though, and that is the believer, the Christian, who looks at what he does and uses it as a standard to determine, am I going to let you in my little club or not? Am I going to view you as really one of us or not? And so the self-righteous person is the person maybe who came in this morning and you've got your Bible with you and it's a big Bible and it's got lots of stuff written in the margins, but then you look around and you see people without their Bibles and that baffles you. How could these people come in here without their Bible? Maybe you walked in and you looked over and you saw the way somebody else was dressed and you thought, Why would they dress that way to come into the church? I almost wore a tie this morning. I'm better. Uh, Maybe you walked in and you saw someone else's kids and it looked like they were going crazy and you thought, I know my kids aren't perfect, but at least I don't let them do that. That's the self-righteous person. Or you listened to Brian's talk last week about sexual sin and you thought, yeah, I've got my struggles, got my challenges, but I'm all right because I don't do what those people do. And so we measure our relationship with God in terms of the things we do or do not do and in terms of how we compare to other people. That's the person that Paul addresses. And my guess is that at different times, every single person in this room is that self-righteous person. Some of you are even proud of yourselves because you think you're not self-righteous, You're listening to this and you're thinking, yeah, people are judgmental. People are intolerant, right? And that attitude creeps into our hearts. And the self-righteous moralist has been listening to a reading Romans chapter 1, particularly verses 18 to 32, and thinking, yeah, that's absolutely right. The world is corrupt and dark and evil. And then Paul's going to turn around and talk directly to that person in chapter 2. Just a quick uh, refresher of the outline of Romans up to this point. You remember the introduction, verses 1 through 17. Paul introduces himself, talks about his mission as an ambassador of the gospel. And then uh, verse 17 talks about 16 and 17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everybody who believes And the idea is that uh, God's righteousness, God's uh, justice is revealed in the gospel, in the good news that in Jesus Christ, God's standard of perfection is met. And so the way Paul is going to uh, pursue his argument throughout this book is to argue that the way that you achieve God's righteousness is by attaching yourself to Jesus Christ. That's the good news, that Jesus has met the standard of righteousness. And then he begins in... uh, chapter 1, verse 18, to lay out, here's why we need righteousness. Here's why you're not good enough. Here's why I'm not good enough. 
Because all of humanity is condemned. Because we knew about God, but we didn't honor him as God. We didn't give thanks. And so our hearts became darkened and we pursued a path of evil. And toward the end of that chapter, he lays out this dark, devastating path away from God. These people are disobedient to their parents. They're slanderers. They're hateful. They're gossips. They're arrogant. They invent evil. They disobey their parents. They're untrustworthy. All of these things. And the moralist hears all of this and says, absolutely, Paul, you get them. And then he turns around here in chapter 2 and he condemns the moral man, the self-righteous man, the one who thinks he's got it all together. He says, you have no excuse either. And, and the problem with the moral person that we're going to see is this. He misunderstands, first of all, the nature of God's righteousness. And he minimizes the nature of his own sin. He either believes that because his sin is all inside his heart and he can hold it together internally that he's okay, or he believes that his particular sins don't measure up as badly as somebody else's. And so he becomes this person who underestimates God's righteousness and minimizes his own sin. And Paul's going to condemn that person as well and say that person is is in as much need of grace as the vilest sinner. So as we walk through this book, the question is, do you and I recognize our need for grace? So how does Paul approach his argument about the moral man, the condemnation of the moral man? The first thing he says is this. The moralist minimizes his own sin. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? In other words, you look around and you create your standard and you say, I'm better than these people. And this is how someone gets into the club of the righteous. Paul says, you look around and you do that and yet you practice the same things. Now, it may not literally be the exact same sins, but what Paul is getting at, I think, here is what Jesus got to in the Sermon on the Mount, is that sin originates in the heart, and then what we see externally is just an overflow of what is in the heart. And so the moral man can hold it together. He can look like he's doing everything right. He shows up in his church clothes. He's got his Bible. Everything's together. He manages to avoid what he considers kind of the big sins, but deep in his heart, he can be as sick and evil as the vilest sinner. And he minimizes that because he doesn't see that God's standard is absolute perfection. Remember, again, he grades on a curve. Some of you may have seen uh, the old movie. It's 30 or 40 years old now. The original movie of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, the one that has Gene Wilder in it. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting movie. And if you remember the storyline, uh, the storyline is Willy Wonka is kind of this eccentric chocolatier and he has a factory that no one's ever able to go into but he finally does a contest and he allows five kids to go into his factory and take a tour and except for charlie who's the main character the protagonist of the story except for charlie all the other kids are spoiled brats they've got annoying habits and they're irritating and they're not good kids and there's two kids who stood out in my mind in particular one was uh, violet beauregard 
Uh, Violet is constantly chewing gum, blowing bubbles and spitting it out. And it's just, it's disgusting. She smacks her gum all the time. People don't want to be around her. The other kid who stood out was Veruca, Veruca Salt, who is a spoiled brat. Her dad gives her anything she wants. She manipulates and begs and pleads into getting whatever she wants. She begs for an Oompa Loompa or whatever it may be. And her dad tries to accommodate her. And uh, there's a great scene in the movie where everybody's sitting on this boat. And Violet is doing her thing with the gum. She's chewing the gum, smacking it. And everybody's kind of grossed out by it. And Veruca, you hear Veruca from off screen say, uh, chewing gum is a disgusting habit. And uh, Willy Wonka says, yeah, but I can think of worse ones. And they pan over to Veruca, whose finger is halfway up her nose. It's a beautiful picture of self-righteousness. You look around and you say, man, that is is sick. That's disgusting. Your own finger's halfway up your nose, right? And you don't see it. Paul says, that's you, self-righteous person. You minimize your own sin. And that's where Jesus goes again in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, you've, you've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You've heard you shouldn't murder. If you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Because sin flows from your heart. And out of your heart, you act. So Jesus internalizes the commands of the law to say nobody, nobody escapes God's judgment. The moralist is the one who thinks, man, what I do is not as bad as what you do. And I think it's every one of us. Years ago, I was sitting at lunch with a few of my friends and I was frustrated with another person. We'll call him Bill. And I began to talk about Bill. And I talked about what I was frustrated with him about. He had asked me to do something. It was at the last minute. I thought it was inconsiderate. How could somebody uh, lack respect for my time and my schedule like Bill, blah, blah, blah. And as I was talking, uh, all of a sudden I heard Bill come up and say, hey, how's it going? And uh, he'd been standing behind me as I was gossiping about it. He walked away. He never gave a clue or indication that he knew what I was saying, although I'm sure he did. And one of my friends said, here's a tip. Next time you gossip, make sure the person's not standing behind you. And what that did all of a sudden was it shone this light back into my own heart. Here I was condemning this other person for his lack of concern and consideration for me. And what was I doing? I was flaying him alive in front of somebody else. That's the self-righteous person. Just doesn't see it. Minimizes his or her own sin, thinking, yeah, I've got it together. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says this, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? And often this is quoted to say, you should never judge anybody. And that's not actually what Jesus is saying when you read the context. Instead, what he's saying is this, when you judge, you have to judge according to the right standard. And the standard is not your own. The standard is God's. The Pharisees were very good at creating a standard. And they codified the law into 613 different commands. And they could keep it and nobody else could. And they would look down their nose at everybody else. But they were judging not according to God's standard, but according to their own. And what Jesus says is this. 
You look at God's standard, which is absolute perfection. And yes, you can say that is sin or that is sin based upon God's standard. But you also have to recognize you've fallen short as well. And so you take that log out of your own eye before you go, you got a little speck. But the self-righteous person simply doesn't see the log. But the person who approaches God with humility and others with humility may still be able to say that's wrong, that's sinful, but approaches it in an attitude of humility and grace and a desire to see this person restored to fellowship with God and an understanding of his own sin. So that the goal of judgment becomes not to pound them down so I can lift myself up, but to raise that person up so they can walk with God. But the self-righteous person minimizes his own sin, simply doesn't see it. Think about the sins that really bother you, the things that people around you do that really anger you or bother you. And the odds are good that it's also in your own heart. But the self-righteous person minimizes his own sin. And as a result, uh, the moralist, the self-righteous person uh, refuses to repent, refuses to repent. Verses four and five. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Part of who Paul is addressing here are actually Jewish self-righteous people who believe that because God had given them the law, because God had given them the promised land and they were living in that land, they believe that that must mean that they did everything right. God has blessed me because I've done everything right. When in reality, what Paul says is this, uh, the reason God hasn't destroyed you yet is because he's giving you time to repent, to recognize your sin, and your need for the grace of God given through Jesus Christ. But the moralist will not repent, will not admit that he's wrong. He's stubborn. That word stubbornness in the Greek language here, it is used also in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And it's used in reference to the Israelites who uh, it says they were stiff-necked before God. Maybe you've been reading the Old Testament and you've seen that phrase before. They were stiff-necked. That means they hardened themselves and they would not turn and change their behavior and their attitudes, even when God warned them, even when God judged them, even when God punished them or spoke to them. They were stiff-necked. They wouldn't turn. He says that's the self-righteous person. He refuses to repent even to admit that he's wrong. I ran across an article a few years ago about a man in New Hampshire who uh, got arrested going through a toll booth in New Hampshire. Here's what happened. He was, uh, going, he was driving to his summer home, it says, when he tried to pay the 50-cent toll with state-issued tokens, as he had always done. Now, the problem is that the state had stopped accepting those tokens about a year before this. Uh, but he was insistent that he was going to use these tokens. He says, I gave the state of New Hampshire money for the tokens, and I expect to be able to use them. Thomas Jensen told the Patriot Ledger. The toll worker refused to take them, and a state trooper at the plaza gave Jensen a citation. The trooper said, just give him the 50 cents. I said, I did. I gave him two tokens, Jensen told the newspaper. Monday, a judge told Jensen he could pay a $150 fine, do community service, or go to jail for three days. He chose jail. 
Over my dead body was I going to give the state another dollar for the tolls, Jensen said. Jensen never told his wife he was in jail. (laughs) Beverly Jensen said she only found out when asked by a television news reporter. Now, I can't blame him, right? Would you want to make that call? I'm in jail. For what? I ran the toll booth. How much was it worth? 50 cents. I wouldn't want to make that call either. Right? Now, whether you think he's right or he's wrong, this is a classic example of being stiff-necked. He refuses to even admit that he might be a little bit wrong. And, and we've all known people like that, and we've all been people like that. You get into a discussion, and you, just, you cannot even see how you might be just a, a little bit wrong. And that's the self-righteous person. He refuses to say, ah, I'm in need of God's grace. I'm wrong. I'm in sin. And he will not repent from his sin in order to get God's grace. When Jesus was criticized for allowing the tax collectors and sinners come over and eat with him and eating with them, it was because the Pharisees themselves, like I said, they had a standard of righteousness that these people down here didn't meet and they were not in the right club. And how dare this teacher, this man who proclaims that he represents God, how dare this man associate with them? Here's how Jesus responds to them in Matthew chapter nine. It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, here's what he says. I didn't come to call the righteous, meaning the person who already thinks he's righteous, the self-righteous. I came to call the person who recognizes he's a sinner and is in need. The self-righteous will not accept or receive God's grace because he doesn't think he needs it. He thinks he's okay. And some of us find ourselves in that place. You've grown up in church your whole life. You've always done everything well. And you may believe the gospel and you are destined for eternal life because of that. And yet still, we believe that God favors us because we're here every Sunday. We do a Bible study during the week. We spend our time during the weekdays reading the Bible and writing things down. And all of those are good things. But where they become self-righteousness is if I begin to believe that they separate me out and grant me God's favor in a way that other people don't have. Because every day, every moment, I'm in as much need of the grace of God in Jesus Christ as I was the day I trusted him. And whether I'm aware each moment of my sin or not, I'm still in need of God's grace. And when I don't recognize that, then I refuse to humbly come before God and repent. And that puts distance in my relationship with God. For those who don't know Jesus, it may be that uh, you've refused to admit that you need him to receive eternal life. And as long as you hold that attitude, you will not receive the grace of God because you don't see your need. So the moral person refuses to repent. And ultimately the issue is this, he judges by the wrong standard. The self-righteous person judges by the wrong standard. He doesn't see, first of all, like we've mentioned, God's standard is absolute perfection. Look at verses 6 through 11. God will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. 
But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Now you read that passage at first glance and it seems to be saying uh, that you can get to heaven based on what you do or what you don't do, right? Those who persevere in seeking glory, honor, and immortality, God will give those people eternal life. But those who are wicked, God will judge and condemn. And so it seems to set up this standard of works-based righteousness. Now what's interesting is that is exactly what the passage does, but there's going to be a twist. All right, what Paul is doing is this. He's going back to the standard of the Old Testament law. And he's saying, all right, you go back to the law. You look at Deuteronomy 28 to 30. You look at Exodus 19 to 24, and God promises the people, if you will obey this, I will give you eternal life on the land I've promised you. Your enemies won't bug you. You'll be at peace with me. You'll be at peace with one another. I'll give you that life if you will obey this law. If you don't, you're going to be cursed. You're going to be kicked off the land. You're going to experience trouble and difficulty and persecution. And as you look at the history of the nation of Israel, what happens? They never obey the law like they're supposed to. They can't, it seems. So they get kicked off the land and then God in his mercy and grace brings them back. And then they get kicked off again. God in his mercy and grace brings them back. And what Paul is saying is this, that, yeah, there is this standard. If you can persistently seek what is right in your heart, in your mind, with your body, God will reward you with eternal life. But guess what? Nobody's done that except one person, Jesus Christ. And the problem with the self-righteous person is he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get that. He really thinks that I can do enough or not do enough in order to earn eternal life or in order to earn God's favor. And the implication here is not, you absolutely can't because in the context, Paul has condemned everybody. Nobody does this right. Even though, yeah, this is God's standard. If you could do it right, great. Uh, One of the restaurants that my family often goes to here in town. They've got one of those machines where there's the little claw and a bunch of stuffed animals down on the bottom. And uh, every time we go there, my kids will ask if we can put some money in the machine and um, try to get one of these animals. And uh, my immediate instinct is to say, why don't we just throw some money out the window, right? Because uh, I've never succeeded, ever. Uh, I've tried, theoretically, I could uh, get one of those animals, I suppose, but I've never done it. I don't ever expect to. Uh, I've never seen anybody do it. I've had one person tell me they've done it at one point. In fact, after the first service, somebody said he has seen someone do it uh, one time. But in my mind, it's an impossible goal. Right? I don't ever expect to do it. Theoretically, it's possible. Right? If the claw landed at just the right place at just the right time, if the animal was just loose enough and they hadn't shoved them all in there together where you couldn't get anything out, right? But practically speaking, it's, it's not going to happen. That's what Paul says about the righteousness of God. Yeah, theoretically, if you could be perfect, God would reward you with eternal life. But guess what? You've already failed. It's too late. And so the only way, the only way to achieve God's righteousness is to attach yourself to the only one who did it, Jesus Christ. So the only way to meet God's standards is to be found in him. 
to believe in what he has done on your behalf, that he fulfilled God's righteousness, that he died to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin as a perfect sacrifice. And then he rose again and he defeated sin and death. So when I believe in him, I attach myself to him so that when I stand before God and I am judged by his absolute perfect standard, God judges me on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ rather than on the basis of my own failure. And the self-righteous person doesn't see that and so he judges by his own standard instead of by God's standard and he refuses to repent and he hangs on to this idea that I can make it right on my own. But you can't. And so God's standard is perfection and we've all missed out on it. And so you and I are in need of grace, even as a Christian. The reason you stand here, the reason you have eternal life is because God has given you grace in Jesus Christ. That means you're no better than anybody else sitting in this room or anybody across town on the darkest street corner. What you have is the grace of God. God's standard is absolute perfection. The other thing is that God's knowledge of us is absolute. Verses 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. All right, again, the self-righteous person doesn't see his own sin. And and he's particularly addressing here, I think, a Jewish self-righteous person who says, I've got the law. God gave me the law because I'm better. And I do the law. And he says, no, you're still condemned because in your heart, you do not fully adhere to the standards of God's righteousness. And the Gentile, how is he condemned, even though he doesn't have the law? Because God, as, as Paul argued in Romans 1, gave him conscience to know what is right and wrong. And even if he can externally obey it internally, he violates his conscience. With the pride in his heart, the hatred toward his brother, or the lust toward another person. He violates his conscience. And so the deal is God knows the secrets of your heart and he judges on that basis. And so you'll stand before God and everything will be laid bare. Everything you've thought, everything you've said, even in places where you thought nobody knew, God knows. You cannot hide. My wife used to teach seventh grade students And uh, occasionally I would come in and uh, be a guest teacher for the day. And uh, one of the things that I noticed as I was teaching these seventh graders that I had never noticed when I was in seventh grade is that as the teacher, uh, you can see and hear everything that's going on. Uh, When I was in seventh grade, I thought we were very sneaky. I thought that she couldn't hear us whispering. I thought that she couldn't see us passing notes. The reality is uh, the teacher chooses not to address every instance of disobedience because she would do nothing else throughout the class. But she sees it and she knows. Uh, Some of you here this morning, you're dozing off and you think I don't see you. I I see you. And the biblical word that we have about God is this. You think he doesn't see. 
You think that you can dress up in your church clothes. You think you can wear the nicest tie, bring the Bible. You think you can look at these people and say, I'm better because of this reason or this reason or this reason. And the reality is God sees you. He sees your heart. You can't hide. And the deepest, darkest secrets of your heart are known to him. And if you want to be judged on the basis of your own standard of righteousness, very well. God will open you up on that day when he judges and he will look and he'll say, you haven't met it. Not even your own standard, much less mine. Because he knows the secrets of your heart. So again, the message here of Romans 2 is you and I are deeply in need of God's unmerited favor. That's grace. Something that God gives to us that we cannot earn. Maybe that you're not yet a Christian in here this morning, that you haven't believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Maybe you're thinking, if if I can have a life where the good outweighs the bad, God will credit me with being good enough. That's impossible. You've already failed as have I, as has every person in this room. The only way to have God's favor, to receive eternal life, is to trust in Jesus who has earned it for you. For those who are Christians, it may be that uh, your temptation, I know it's often mine, is to look at other people and measure my own righteousness or goodness against them. And all of us have these areas where uh, we're tempted to judge other people and we judge them for the sake of shoving them back down so that I can pull myself back up and feel better. When in reality, perhaps if if I've been uh, blessed with a spiritual walk or I've been allowed to mature in a particular area, maybe what I ought to do is turn around and help another person to lead them and point them to Jesus Christ and be their mentor or disciple rather than judging and condemning them and excluding them from my little club. Maybe when I'm tempted to judge when I walk into this room or I go to a class or I'm on campus, instead of doing that, what I ought to do is say, thank you, God, that in Jesus Christ, you've given me your grace. Not that I'm better, but you've given me your grace. And it's in that that I stand. And it's through that then that I preach the message of the gospel, that there is redemption and eternal life and forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, that then the Spirit enters into our life and allows us to take on the character of Jesus Christ. Because I can't do it on my own. So quickly as we close, a couple of questions. Do you recognize your need for God's grace? Or are you stiff-necked, unwilling to admit that you could be wrong, that you could be sinful? Do you recognize each day I'm a sinner. I need God's grace. And then secondly, what are the areas of self-righteousness in your life that need to be addressed? What kind of person do you look at and say, I'm just, I'm glad I'm better than that. How can we begin to absorb the fact that it is only through Jesus Christ that we have any standing before God because of his grace? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word. As Hebrews says, it it reveals the intentions and thoughts of our heart. It opens us up and lays us bare before you. You know our secrets. 
You know our hearts. You know we can't hide. And so we ask forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Forgiveness for the times that we believed that we can earn your favor because of what we do or don't do. We pray, Father, that instead we would seek to live daily in a recognition of all that you've done for us in Jesus. Pray if there are any in here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ, that they would believe and receive the free gift of eternal life. And I pray for those of us who do, that we would be ambassadors of your gospel, to share it with the world and to help others to grow into the character of Jesus Christ. We love you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Have a wonderful week.